Friends, if you would turn into your Bibles, if you have them, to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. And it's also printed in your bulletins. And I'm actually going to be reading from uh, beginning in verse 1 that's not printed in your bulletin, obviously. And you'll see why here in a moment. But the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that the meditations of our hearts would all be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> Friends, the reason I began reading in verse 1 of Mark chapter 1, because for one, the lectionary says to read in verse 4, but in order to be able to get the full context, we need to begin in verses 1 through 3, because in Verse 1, what does Mark say? If you look, well, you can't look in your bulletin, but if you look in verse 1, Mark says, in the beginning. And what is Genesis 1 that we heard just a moment ago? What does Genesis 1 say? In the beginning. So Genesis 1 is the beginning of God's story in creation. So beginning in Genesis, we see God's work of creating all that we see, and not only that, but him calling Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans, out of a, uh, out of a pagan land. And then we see Israel subjected to, Israel, uh, to Egyptian bondage. And then we see God redeeming his people through Moses out of that Egyptian bondage and, and giving them at least partially the land of promise of Israel. But then we see what happens after that, that they lose the promised land because of their sin. They go into exile. And so what Mark is doing here, he's saying, you know that story that you heard when you were a little kid in the beginning? Well, here's a new beginning. Whereas that was the creation account and God's dealing in the beginning of that creation, Mark says this is the beginning of redemption. This is a new chapter in the life of the world. In the fullness of time, God sent his son. 
And so Mark is picking up on that throughout his gospel. He's going to be picking up on this very notion that this is a new day and a new time in God's working in the world. And so it shouldn't be lost on us when I was reading in there that that Mark says, thus to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah wrote. And what does he say? He says that um, I am sending my messenger before you who will prepare your way, a voice calling of one in the desert. And in reality, this is a conflation. This is a bringing together of three different verses. And a lot of scholars will say, hey, you know, Mark just kind of got it wrong. He said that the prophet Isaiah said this. Well, you see, that's the problem a lot of times with biblical illiteracy. And with a heart of pride, a lot of times we can look at Scripture and we say, that doesn't make sense to me, and so therefore it must be wrong. That must be an error in the Bible. But I would encourage all of us, like St. Augustine said, is that when I don't understand something in Scripture, I need to bend my will and my heart to understand Scripture. The things that are difficult don't mean that this is wrong or that there's an error. In fact, if you go a little deeper and you look at the entire Gospel of Mark, you'll see that what Mark is doing, Mark is saying, this is a new exodus. That God is saving his people just like he saved people from Israel. I mean, from Egypt, he saved his people Israel and gave them the promised land. In the same way, God is saving his people but from sin, from bondage and slavery to sin. And because he's, he's bringing these pieces together, he's bringing, in fact, you would, you would see in Exodus 23, that's where that passage is coming from, where I am sending my messenger, where the angel of the Lord goes before the people to prepare the land. So the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, goes before his people in the wilderness. And you see that by a pillar of, of uh, fire and a cloud by day. And then Malachi 3, who will prepare your way. And in fact, we find out that this is Elijah who is preparing the way by purging the people of their sin. And then finally, we get to the actual quotation from Isaiah 40, a voice calling out in the wilderness. So no, this is not a misquote from Mark. This is Mark showing us that this is the way God has always acted. That he has meant for his people to be redeemed and to be freed from bondage, not only in Egypt, but preeminently from sin and from Satan and from the and from the prince of this world. And so it's not Mark having an error or a lapse of memory. But in fact, he's telling us in this that Jesus is a new and better Moses. And in fact, what we'll see later on in our passage is that he's not just a new and better Moses. He's a new and better Joshua. And you'll see what I mean here in a minute. So the uh, we come to our passage in verse chapter 4, right? Behold, I send my messenger. John appeared. John appeared. There's a pause in the narrative to where we are meant to say, oh, all of that expectation of, of the voice crying out in the wilderness, there's John's. And so what I want you to do, we're going to answer three questions from our text today. We're going to answer, what is John's baptism? Then we're going to ask the question and hopefully answer it, why was Jesus baptized? And then the third question is, what is Jesus' baptism? So what is John's baptism? Why was Jesus baptized? And what is Jesus' baptism? So question number one, what is John's baptism? I want you to circle two words. I want you to circle the word in your bulletin, baptizing and proclaiming. And then I want you to put a little box 
around wilderness. And then I want you to put a box around repentance. This is a little hermeneutical uh, mystery that I do when I do my Bible studies. So what am I doing? I'm circling the verbs or the actually w- what John is doing. He appears, but then he is doing what? Baptizing and proclaiming. His ministry is not divorced from where he's ministering to. It's really important for us to grasp the fact that John is baptizing in the wilderness. Why is that? And it's not just a matter that John read Isaiah and he says, Oh, I want to be called a prophet of of God, so I need to go out into the wilderness. I need to put on some garb and I need to go and and be a prophet. No, he's not... Like selling snake oil. He's not dressing up so that people give him money. He's not going out in the wilderness and eating locusts and wild honey so people have pity on him and and think he's just a weirdo. No, John actually, he lives in the wilderness. John is a picture for us what a life of repentance looks like. He's a picture for us because we see that all of the people were going out to John. And that's not just some that's not just some geographical location like I'm going outside, but they're going out to him. They're going out to this place of repentance. They're going out to this place of saying, I need you. Yeah, of course, some people went out to the wilderness to go see this kind of sideshow Bob kind of freak circus event. Sure, there were some people that were doing that. There, we see that there are Pharisees and Sadducees who were going there and just saying, Who is this weirdo? But the majority of the people we're going out to hear John in a posture of listening, in a posture and attitude of, I need. I need something that I'm not getting from all of this religious jargon of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And see, this has great implications for how we approach the Word of God. This has great and massive implications for what we do in community with each other and at church when we gather on Sunday. This has massive implications because where do we hear God? And minus the the tingling noise right now, we try to have moments of quietness and solitude. That's why we have quietness at the beginning because there's something beautiful about hearing God in quietness. We're all coming with a ton of things. I I know we 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 deal with that every Sunday ourselves in the Wireman household of running, running, getting dressed, getting dressed, getting in the car, getting in the car now. We understand that, and so it's time to slow down. You've got work obligations, you've got relational obligations, you've got so many things that are swirling around in your heads right now. I know because they're going on in my head even as I preach. And so we need to come to God and listen for him in silence. And in quietness. And not only that, but with an attitude of receiving. You know, one of the things that I constantly find fascinating is when people go to a conference, or or better, if they go to a church where there are thousands of people in this church, and you talk to some person, he's like, man, that guy, his message was amazing. I am so thankful. Oh, God spoke to me in so many amazing ways. And you talk to somebody else in that same congregation that heard the same message, they say, eh, it's all right. The difference is not the preacher, is it? The difference is the attitude in which we come to hear the word of God. That is the very essence of what it means to go out into the wilderness, to say, Lord, I need from you. I need to hear from you. I need to feel it in my bones because I am not getting anything from reading scripture right now. I'm not getting anything in community. I'm not getting I'm I'm hearing all this great, great preaching. 
not necessarily for me. I'm talking about in general. You can podcast all day long, right? So you can hear all this great preaching, but our hearts are still numb and calloused and cold. And so what God is telling us, even in this little passage, this small verse here, is that he wants us to go to the place of the wilderness. The place of solitude, the place of quietness. I want you to notice a second aspect here of John's baptism. The people that were coming out to him were already Jews. Did you catch that? They've already been marked by the sign of circumcision that the covenantal people of God are marked with. So why are they going out and why is John talking to them to repent? I thought they were already in the people of God. But see, John is helping us see that God is turning the chapter, that there is something new, that he's, he's, he's in line with all the prophets in the Old Testament, but there is a new chapter starting in the way that God deals with his people. And it's no longer by a sign of physical circumcision, but he's saying, I want to do something that's not just done in a temple by a few people on an eighth day to a male. I want to do something public. I want to do something so that everyone can see, and not just everyone, but males and females. And not just Jews, but Gentiles also. Because a lot of scholars will go back and forth, but I think it suffices to say that, that John is borrowing from a typical um, religious rite that Gentiles would do. When they, become a, when they became a Jew, they would be circumcised, but they would also cleanse themselves. So if I'm a Gentile and I become a Jew, I would purify myself in a baptism that I would do on myself. But here we see that John is performing this rite of baptism. Now what's unique about that is that what John is doing, again, going back to the fact that these are Jews that are coming out to him, Gentiles welcome as well, but this is primarily the people of God. He's saying you will no longer be marked by external signs on your flesh, but you will be marked as a people who in their hearts have repented and put their faith in Jesus, and the whole world will know. That is the new sign of the new covenant. And so that all people, all people, not just Jews, but also Gentiles, will know the name of the Lord. Jeremiah 31. And so the people went out to the wilderness because the wilderness is where God does his work. Remember the story, Israel, they are redeemed out of Egypt, and where do they go? They go to the wilderness. And we're familiar with that, that for 40 years, for 40 years, the, the amount of time that I've almost been alive, 40 years, they were wandering in tents with no home. Let that sink in for a moment. They were living a generation of repentance. So Moses led them through the Red Sea to a place of repentance. And so you and I are also called to come to this place of repentance first. Called call, call to this place of repentance. But I don't want it to get lost on us that John is not baptizing in the Red Sea. He's not baptizing in the Dead Sea, which would be uh, very painful with the salt content. Your eyes would burn, and that would be a real death. But he's baptizing in the Jordan River. He's baptizing in the Jordan River, 
I want you to put a pin in that and realize it's a different location. It's not just the place of the Red Sea where God redeems his people from Egypt. And I'm going to test your, your Bible knowledge here in a moment. Because what happens at the Red Sea is that God demolishes Israel's greatest foe, their enemy. They're devastated. But what do they do? They're led not to the promised land that was promised to Abraham. They were led to a place of repentance that I've already said. And so they wander in the desert for 40 years. And they come where? Israel, after 40 years, where do they come? They come to the Jordan River. And what happens when the water of the Jordan River splits because of Joshua? They cross through the Jordan River just like they cross through the Red Sea. But what are they crossing from? They're crossing from a place of repentance to a place of inheritance. They're coming to the very thing that God promised them, but that's after. That's after 40 years of repenting. And so the question then comes, why was Jesus baptized? So this is John's baptism. He's picking up on this idea of repentance unto forgiveness. But then why was Jesus baptized? I really had to pause and ask that question because that's what the whole passage is about. Why was Jesus baptized? He didn't sin. He was perfect. He didn't need to come to a place of repentance. So if I were to ask you why was Jesus baptized... What would you say? Well, I quickly answered, because he was our model. And that was, that's, that's a true answer. And that's a gloriously true answer. And uh, in his baptism, he identifies with us as his people. There we go. Point three. No, I'm just kidding. No. Point three doesn't come just yet because I want us to grasp something that we need to borrow from another gospel writer, gospel, the gospel writer Matthew in chapter 3. What does John the Baptist say to Jesus when Jesus comes to him? John says, what are you, what are you doing? I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me, and what is Jesus' response? Jesus' response is, let it be done so now to fulfill all righteousness. So what is this? I can't get into all of the, the, the theology of what righteousness is, but suffice it to say that righteousness is, is the characteristic of the person who is walking in perfect obedience to God. That is what it means to be righteous. It means to be on the right way, the one who is without sin, the one who is without blemish. And so Jesus says, I'm going to take that mantle on because I am the righteous one. And I will be baptized. To get a, bit, a picture of this, uh, one of my favorite moments in the movie Braveheart, which is my favorite movie, uh, is when William Wallace is on his horse and with his paint on his face. I was thinking about coming with a painted face this morning. Um, and what does he do? He's going back and forth on his horse. And what is he doing to rile these Scottish men up as they see this horrible, huge army on the other side and they are scared to death? And William Wallace, he starts to remind them of why they're fighting. Why are they fighting? For freedom, right? For freedom. And what does he do? This is the picture that I want us to grasp onto. I had actually had to watch the, the little clip this morning, so I was getting really revved up. But I had to watch the clip because I thought that William Wallace just rode out on his horse and started slashing people and, and got victory that way. No, actually in the movie, if I got the right clip right... William Wallace is on the front lines with 
all of the men, all of the Scottish army, and he's there saying, hold, wait, wait. He is right there in their midst fighting with them. He is in their midst as their general, not out in front, but in their midst. And he's saying, follow me and I'm going to go with you. And so in the same way, Jesus is saying, I will be baptized. I will go through these waters just like you and I will be with you fighting shoulder to shoulder with you to conquer your greatest enemy, sin. So Jesus has come to the water as the lead general. And as I've already alluded to, you can take the pin out now, is that he is the new and better Joshua. In fact, the name Jesus is the Greek word name for Joshua. And so we are meant to think in biblical categories that Joshua, what did Joshua do? Joshua led the people through the Jordan River to their inheritance. And so Jesus enters the water of the Jordan River as a general, side by side with his people, saying, follow me together. And so the author of Hebrews, unless you think I'm stretching it a little bit, the author of Hebrews picks up on this very thing in the fourth chapter of Hebrews. Where he said that if Joshua, see the problem was Joshua gave them rest partially. He didn't give them rest completely because, like I mentioned a moment ago, they lost it, didn't they? Through their disobedience. And so the author of Hebrews saying that if Joshua was the final Joshua, there would be no reason for them to say, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Listen, listen to God. Because your redemption is greater than a physical real estate. A redemption is indeed freedom from bondage to slavery to sin. You see, Israel lost the land to the Canaanites and the Philistines because their greatest enemy was themselves, was their sin. And the only way to conquer our greatest enemy of sin is by dying, is by death. And so John picks this up when in that same passage in Matthew 3, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. And what does Jesus say that we're going to celebrate here in a moment? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. In the shedding of blood, there is life. And in fact, we have to pass through a river of blood to get to the other side of our inheritance. And so Jesus, by shedding his own blood, promises you and me and all those who follow in our wake redemption and inheritance. And I want us to notice one last thing about the baptism that Jesus submitted to. Do you notice that the people don't go to the Jordan River and then go back to Jerusalem and there Jesus is saying, great job. You did it. You repented. Jesus goes himself to the river of repentance. Jesus himself is going to the place where the people are already. This is the one to whom I will look, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit, the one who says, I don't have it together. So Jesus isn't on the other side saying, come to me. 
He's saying, I'm in the water of repentance with you. And this is where I can be found if you'll see me, if you'll hear from me. So Jesus is at that very moment in our wilderness when we say, I cannot put it together. I cannot get my act together. I can't win friends and influence people. The power of positive thinking has not worked for me. Jesus is saying, that's not where I'm at. I'm not on the other side. I'm right here in the water of repentance with you. And it happens every day that we repent of our sin, that there Jesus is found most palpably. So lastly, what, what is Jesus' baptism? You see, Moses led them through the Red Sea to a place of repentance. And they were in the place of repentance. They crossed the Jordan River as a people of Israel, but then they had to cross back in exile to Babylon because of sin. And so the new Joshua offers all of us freedom perpetually forever. So this is not just for Israel. Like I said, remember John is baptized in the Jordan saying anybody who repents of their sin can come. So it's not just for Jew, but it's for Gentile as well. But I want you to look at this. Verse 8. John says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 10, when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn apart and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. So instead of the waters being torn apart like the Red Sea and the Jordan River, what happens? Heaven itself is torn apart. Access to God is free through Jesus. And and what do we hear? We hear the voice of God coming, This is my beloved son. I am pleased with you. And in fact, this is the very thing that Mark's picking up in his gospel. If you go to the end of his his gospel, in, in chapter 15, verse 38, what happens to the temple curtain? It's torn. It's the same verb. That just as the heavens are torn open, the temple curtain is torn open, and we have access to God because Jesus was torn open. One of the things I want us to grasp from this, this is something that the early church um, would go back to again and again in the debates about the Trinity, whether there was one God and three persons. How do you get your mind around that? That's for another time. But they would go here to the baptism of Jesus. Why? Because you see God the Son in the water, God the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and God the Father speaking. So there was a, a heresy at that time where basically God goes behind a curtain and he comes out and he says, I'm Jesus. He goes behind a curtain and he says, hey, I'm, I'm a spirit. So it's not God, one God in three different manifestations or three different roles in a play. This is one God in three persons, and we see it right here, at one time. Okay, that's, that's really important to know, and, and uh, it's a, a good nugget to, to talk with a Jehovah's Witness about, that this is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit in time and space at the same time relating to each other. So it's not as though God is changing roles and putting on different garb and then you know now he's the spirit now he's now he's the son now he's the father no at the same time he's god the father god the son and god the spirit three persons one essence one being that's one thing the second thing i want you to notice is that the spirit was hovering and descending on jesus what did we hear from genesis 1 that the spirit of god was hovering over the waters 
at creation. This is a not only a new exodus, but indeed this is a new creation. That God is providing for his people who repent and are born again by being baptized in the name of Jesus. Not only was the Spirit of God hovering, but then we also see that he's descending like a dove. Some more biblical literacy here. Where do we first hear about a dove? Is at Noah. Once the flood has subsided and the dove comes to say, there's peace, I will no longer cause this this whole world to be subdued and, and, and submerged in a flood. And so God says, I offer you peace because death has happened. Judgment has happened already here. And so he comes in as a dove. He's not coming in as a raven. He's not coming in like any other kind of bird. But Mark is picking up on the fact that he's a dove because peace with God happens through death, judgment, through flood. And Jesus himself is submerged and flooded and dies. And then finally, the spirit resting on the suffering servant. In in Isaiah chapter 11 that we read during the Advent season, that the spirit rests upon the one who was to come and suffer and die for you and for me. And so peace with God comes through the spirit of God. Through the violent tearing of the heavens, God says, I want to fellowship with you. I want to. To know you and I want you to know me. The God of creation. And friends, this is the the rock bottom of what I'm getting at. Through your dying to yourself, by taking up your cross and following Jesus, by dying, you can have life. That's the point. Is it's through death that God breathes life by his spirit that's hovering over the waters and he wants to by grace breathe life into your body and we see finally what is this baptism of Jesus in our epistle reading from today from Acts 19 there were about 12 men I think that's a fascinating thing and I don't want to spend too much time on this but there were about 12 men why, why pick on up on that well 12 is showing a new Israel is coming to coming to bear 12 disciples 12, 12 converts. It's no, no, we shouldn't get lost on this. You can't count about 12 men. Why didn't, why didn't he round to 10? Or why didn't he round to 15 or 20? He rounded to 12 to show that the Spirit of God is forming a new people for God himself. This is a new Israel. This is the inheritance that God promises to all those who submit their life to Jesus. What is this inheritance? Look at Acts 19. You don't have to go there now, but go there at your your leisure. Is that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have a new and better promise. Have you ever found yourself saying, man, I wish I could just talk to Jesus face to face. Man, I have. Man, I wish I could just, if I could just have coffee with him and talk and just kind of have a relationship like that. For one, we have scripture, which is even greater. This is, this is sure and a sure foundation that we can build our lives on. But what does Jesus say to his disciples? They're, they're distraught. He says, it is actually better that I go away. Why? So that I can send the Spirit. Why? Because Jesus is was bound while on earth in space and time. He was in a 
specific spot of real estate. And Jesus is saying, hey, there's a lot of people in this world and they can't hear what I'm saying. And there wasn't tweeting back then and there wasn't Facebook and there wasn't Instagram. And Jesus, and so if you wanted to have a relationship with Jesus, you had to actually you know, fly or take a caravan to, to Jerusalem and talk to Jesus. And Jesus says, my spirit is so much better because it, he transcends space and time. That at any moment we can have a relationship with God because of the spirit. And so the Spirit is the inheritance that Jesus offers. So what does He do? He doesn't just give us, you know, a new car and a new house and a and a you know a better life right now. What does He do? He gives us life, the Spirit Himself. He says, the Spirit is not only going to be hovering around you and over you, but I'm going to breathe my Spirit in you if you come to the wilderness and repent, and if you walk through the stream, the river of forgiveness. Through my very own blood. And unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. So Jesus is saying, come to me and experience life. But how do you experience life? We experience it through his death. And we experience it through our own deaths. And to see that he is creating for himself a new people, a new creation. So friends... I could go through a list of different sins that we're all probably carrying right now. But maybe the greatest thing for us to come to before we come to the table is what, you, what you're struggling with that only you know about, not even your spouse knows about, not even your best friend knows about, not even your roommate knows about. That struggle, that doubt, that God wants to meet you there. And he's got broad shoulders, and he can take it. He can take your doubts. He can take your pride, your self-interest, your fear, your loathing, and he can, he can crush it, and he can make you new. That's the beauty of the gospel. And so what is that sin? So I want us to take just a few moments to consider, God, I, and, I, and I want you to cry out to God, God, please come into this place of my wilderness, and I repent of this. I don't know what the next day or two or week is going to look like in your life. But I promise that in that place of repentance, Jesus says, I will be there. And I will help you kill it. I will help you drown that sin because on the other side of this Jordan River is your inheritance by the Spirit. So let's just take a few moments and deal with God in whatever way that He's dealing with you right now by His Spirit. And then after that, we'll sing our song of, of response.